0: And we've got to remember that we define these terms not by how we want to view them, but by how the Bible uses them and how the Bible applies them. And we were looking last week at this idea of what is an actual Spirit-led community look like. What can we expect from a community that is born again? One that is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We should be able to look at that community and see one thing in particular. And I hope you guys are listening because you'll be able to shout out that phrase. What is it? Love, correct. And it's not just any kind of love. It's a love defined by the Bible. It's a love that's not just whatever we want to do because you can go to any old Joe on the street and say, hey, mate, do do you think love's important? He'll say, oh, yes, it is. But what does it look like? Who sets the standard? Who defines what is true love and what is false love? And I want to say that here in our passage, it's actually kind of a part two of what we learned last week of what is a genuine Spirit-led community, but I want to really hone in on the Spirit-led individual. What does the true Christian look like? What kind of change does the Spirit make in a person? What effects should we be able to see? Well, I believe 1 Peter has an answer for us, and a really important answer for us because he's going to compare us to a newborn. And a newborn will be the image of what a Christian looks like. And so I want you to hold on to that image of a newborn as we come to our text today. And my first point that I want to deal with as we get into this text is this idea of a dysfunctional community. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, reading from verses 1 to 3. Peter says this, So, Put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I believe this section would have been better to keep in chapter one. These first three verses really kind of finish off the point that Peter was making uh, last chapter. we are got to remember that the chapter verses, uh, the chapters themselves, they're not the inspired Word of God. They were inserted later by people to help us navigate the Word. And I firmly believe that this section should have been included, and I'll show you why. Last week, we saw that Peter pressed the churches to love one another sincerely. He says, having purified your soul to brotherly love, we must be a church that is transformed first by the love of God, to the love of each other. Once you're transformed by the love of God, it naturally follows that you will love other people. And not everyone's love, or at least their own definition or versions of it, is of necessity love. Love is what is defined by the Scriptures. Whatever you find on a random Instagram post or a definition that pops up on social media or whatever people shout out while they're holding signs about what love means, don't buy into it. What does God say? What is his definition? Fools change their standards to match whatever changing definitions people come up with. And trust me, our definition of love that we have right now will be different in 10 years. And it will be different again in 20 years and 50 and 100 years. But the definition that is handed down to us in Scripture never changes. It is the same yesterday, today and forever as Jesus is, because Jesus's word never changes and he never lies. The wise man recognizes that these standards are baked into the very reality of God's universe. And Peter says, having purified yourself to a sincere brotherly love, that sincerity is according to God's word, here are some things that are completely incompatible with that. He says, put away these things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Having put on Christ... You have to take something off, don't you? You have to take off your sin and you have to put on Christ because these sins are completely at odds with Christ. Our church is in the Reformed tradition and the Reformed tradition often uses this phrase, mortify your sins. And that word mortify means to put to death. It's a phrase that comes from the Apostle Paul, this idea of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now the flesh in the Bible is characterized by passions. Those strong inward desires that you have towards the wrong thing. And we all have them, and we can all come clean with it. We do have them. We have these desires that lead us in all different directions. Now, the Bible's not necessarily saying that just any passion that you have or any uh, desires that you have are of necessity evil, because God has put a lot of good passions in us. But the ones that cause us to fall into sin are the ones that we must put to death. Now, that phrase, mortify, you can't get a stronger word than that. About how much you have. It's not just like, ignore them. It's not sweep them under the carpet. It's not, oh, pretend that they're not there. It is, kill them. Put them in the ground so that they cannot come back. That is our task. As John famously said, be killing sin, or sin shall be killing you. And this takes discipline, doesn't it? It takes self-awareness, self-reflection. It's not necessarily our strong points, are there? Having a sense of self-awareness, knowing how uh, we act, knowing how we come across, and being able to reflect on yourself. It's not not something we do very well, do we? It takes the ability to see the sin that's in our heart. Uh, One of the things I've noticed over my time in ministry is that probably people's greatest weaknesses is their inability to identify their own sins. Their inability to see the sin that has taken firm root in their heart And kind of blows up their life all the time and every time their life blows up and things go wrong and relationships break down who's at fault it's not them it's the other person they took it the wrong way it's the other person they reacted wrong it's the other person they didn't understand where I was coming from they didn't understand my intentions but people are really uh, very poor at taking responsibility for their actions and if they do get around to confessing their sins It's often trivial and superficial and something that can kind of wiggle their way out as much as uh, they can. Often it's, I'm sorry that you felt that way to what I said, but I really meant it like this. And sometimes it's true. I don't want to say that that never happens. But when we're in a conflict with someone, it's humility isn't close at hand, is it? When we hear a list like this, here's what I do when I come to these passages. I go, oh, yep. Those are really bad things. And then I continue on. I ever once think, as I'm reading this list, hang on a minute, Peter might be trying to say something to me. He might be actually trying to say, Cody, wake up, this is what's in your heart. You have malice, you have deceit, you have envy, hypocrisy. We need to know that as a true Christian, you cannot stay in these sins. Not only is it unhealthy, but it is impossible. Because these sins will weigh heavily on you. Why? Well, we see from Scripture that the Spirit grieves within us when we give ourselves over into sin and these kind of practices. We can't stay in them and feel good. We become restless. We become agitated, sorrowful. We become unfulfilled until we come back to our senses and repent before God. You may notice that in this passage, it doesn't say something like drunkenness. It doesn't say something like debauchery or sexual immorality. Those things are easily identifiable, aren't they? They're actions that someone commits and you go, boom, that is what that is. But these ones, they're a bit harder to detect, aren't they? How often can we say that we, we have a good barometer of where someone has, uh, is acting hypocritically towards us, that they're putting on a facade, that they're putting on a pretense? Do you think you have a good barometer on that? Some people think they do. But what about yourself? We need to come back to our senses sometimes and recognize what's in us. I mean, why does God care so much about these things? Why do they come up so frequently in the letters that the apostles send to the church? Nothing is more destructive to a community than these types of sins. Yes, sexual immorality is destructive. Yes, drunkenness is destructive. Yes, all manners of sins that you can find all around that are so obvious and plain and clear. Yes, these things are very destructive to communities, but you can see them. You can put your finger on them and say, boom, that's a sin. You move on, you feel good about yourself. But these ones are hard to identify. These sins put you at odds with each other. They destroy communities. And at the center of all these is really selfishness, a self-love. The opposite of brotherly love is what? Love for self. Loving yourself more than you love your brothers. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are incompatible with a sincere brotherly love. And so we have to get into these words. What do they mean? It's enough to just say them, but what does it look like? Well, malice is very uh, closely related to cruelty. It's a pleasure at the hurt of another person. Now, it could be at your hands. A malicious person could inflict pain on someone else and they feel good about it but it could also be that bad stuff has fallen upon them and you feel good about it. Ah, they deserve that. Before you write it off and say, this most certainly cannot be talking about me, how do you go when you argue with your spouse? Have you ever deliberately wanted to hurt them, to win an argument and inflict pain upon them, to feel good about yourself, to prove a point, I have to be the first one here to say, guilty, yes. I've deliberately and maliciously sinned against my wife in many of our arguments. Oh, It's like a dagger in my heart. I don't know if you feel that too. If you want to put these things away, you have to learn how to put on brotherly love. Because if you don't know how to put on this kind of love, you cannot take off malice. It just won't happen. It's as close to you as your own heart. So if malice is a feeling of satisfaction at the pain of another, then brotherly love is being grieved at the misfortune of your brother or sister. Brotherly love mourns with those who mourn. That is the opposite of malice. If deceit is full of treachery and dishonesty, then brotherly love rejoices with the truth. Brotherly love is honest with their brothers and sisters. If hypocrisy is putting on a facade, being a flatterer, in fact, this word hypocrisy in Greek literally means actor. And what would happen is the actors would wear masks when they were performing in the theatres at the time. And it was basically someone who's wearing a mask. It's not the real them. They're putting on a show. They're putting on something different. If that is what being a hypocrite is, then brotherly love is genuine. It's not an opportunity to conceal one's life and to pretend to be someone else, but to live openly with people. Now that's hard. What about envy? Envy is a big one. Envy is when something good happens to someone else. It's It's kind of closely related to malice. It's when something good happens to someone, you feel bad about it. It hurts you that someone else was preferred over you, that someone else was given honor over you. Someone else received some level of status or wealth or something that you desired and someone else got it and so you despise them for getting it. They haven't done anything to you. You just envy them. You're jealous of them. Why do they get that and I don't? That is envy. And if envy is jealousy and pain at the fortune of another, then what is brotherly love? It's rejoicing when good things happen to other people, even though it may not have happened to you. What about slander? If slander is defaming and vilifying people, then brotherly love seeks to build others up, not tear them down with innuendo and character assassination. It's edifying. And wherever the spirit goes, you can be sure of this. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander will increasingly be cut off from that community. These things will be taken away. The Spirit will not allow these things to stay firmly rooted in a community for long. And if they are, then you can be sure that Jesus will come and take their lampstand away. My second point. I'm going to get into some more happy stuff. A growing community. Let's pick up again from verse 2. Peter says, Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So, Peter is going to change the metaphor here, and he compares the Christian to a newborn. And this newborn needs to grow right from the beginning all over again. This Christian basically needs to start fresh, just like a newborn is starting life fresh. Our task is to long for God the same way that a newborn longs for his mother's milk. What does a newborn do? Well, I have the great privilege of having my life surrounded by newborns one after another, and all they do is cry for it. Mom, I want some milk. And they cry and they cry and they cry and they cry. And this is what Peter's saying. Cry out for this milk. Don't go a day without it. It grows you up into the salvation secured for you in Christ. Newborns are so persistent that they drive their mothers crazy especially when they're up all throughout the night. And the mothers in the church can say a hearty amen to that. The question is this, what is this pure spiritual milk that we're supposed to be craving? If Peter is so intent on like, you guys need this milk, you guys need to crave for it like a newborn craves for it. I would not have understood this passage like if I had uh, read this like two years ago. But it's clear from the context that Peter is referring back to the main point of the entirety of his letter so far. And that main point is this, the pure spirit here is the living and abiding word of God and its effect on those who partake of it. If you know your theology, you'll know that all of scripture speaks to the majesty and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks to God's eternal plan of salvation for his elect. And if that's the case, then we do not graduate from the gospel. We don't get to move on from the gospel. The gospel's not our starting And then once we've understood it, we get to move to more glorious and amazing and wonderful things. No, that's not what happens. It's not the beginning of our faith. It's the very middle and the end. It's not the ABCs of faith, but it's the A2Z of faith. The gospel is far larger. It's more vast in its scope and application than you could possibly realize. It can't be kept onto a little gospel tract, even though I really appreciate them. But that is just a tiny little snippet of the amazing uh, Message of the gospel. If angels, we hear from Peter, says before that they long to look into these things, what makes you think that you can have plumbed its depths and then moved on from the gospel and have moved beyond your need for constant grace day by day? When you throw yourself into the gospel, that's when you're going to learn marvelous things. When you learn more about the importance of obedience to the gospel, then you'll be able to teach those among the nations to observe everything that the Lord has commanded us. When you learn more about the scope of Jesus' claims on the universe, not only will you have bent the knee to Christ, but you'll learn that all authority has been given to Him. And Can you view the world the same way again? If all authority has been given to Him, that means that Jesus really does rule and reign over this universe. Wow. You've got your work cut out for you in the gospel, don't you? We learn more about the aims of the gospel. It is not merely an opportunity for us to be saved as an individual, but to be part of a covenant community. That works its way out in a whole variety of ways, doesn't it? See, the more you learn about the implications of the gospel, as it remodels your marriage into an image of the gospel, it remodels your household into an image of the gospel, your communities, your interactions with people, all of a sudden, the gospel is everything, isn't it? Everything, from the moment you wake up to the moment you lie down. As Christians learn these lessons more and more, as they understand the gospel and how it relates to every page of scripture, this pure spiritual milk, Peter says here, grows you up in salvation or into salvation, he says. Peter's point is this. If we are born again, then we are spiritual newborns. Remember that. If you're born again, You have to start from the beginning again. Just like a natural birth, you've got to start from the very beginning. If we are born again, then you better long for that milk. For by it you will grow up into salvation. Matthew Henry says this, he says, Strong desires and affections to the Word of God are a sure evidence of a person's being born again. If they be such desires as the babe has for milk, they prove that the person is newborn. How good is that? They are the lowest evidence, but yet they are certain. The reason why we should crave this milk, Peter says, is by it you may grow up into salvation. Now that phrase, grow up into salvation, might make us a little bit apprehensive. Because is that a salvation that we're growing up into and earning by our good works? Or is that a salvation that we already have? And if you have good theology, you'll know that it is the latter. Well, the Greek word here, into, it's a preposition, and it has a wide variety of meanings based on context. And the context is going to help us to understand what Peter's saying here. If we are born again, we already know, he's told you, you have salvation. You will obtain the outcome of your soul, your salvation. It's something that we don't have to earn. It's something that you have been given. Just with our natural birth, you didn't earn life. Somebody not come up to you and say, all right, you want to get born, you want, uh, you know, you want to be conceived. All right, better get going with some good deeds. You don't even exist. How can you even begin to do that? It's the same with being a a Christian. It is a work that God does within you. It's a new birth. It's a spiritual birth. In the same way, we are like newborn infants growing up into the life that has been given to you. Does that make sense? The newborn... The natural newborn grows up into the life that has been given to them and the spiritual newborn grows up into the salvation that has been given to them. The point is this, the way you grow up in this new life, the way you receive sustenance, the way you receive strength to persevere and to continue is through the living and abiding word of God, the pure spiritual milk come regularly and feast. You've seen some newborns go crazy. They start vomiting because they've drunk so much. That's the kind of attitude you want to have to the Word of God. My third point, a genuine community. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, for the first time in all of 1 Peter, Peter inserts the tiniest bit of doubt into the text, doesn't he? Up until this point, he has been utterly confident in that church. Until this point, he has spoken in very bold and certain terms, declaring amazing truths and applying them without any sort of qualification to the church itself. He has detailed our amazing inheritance, our sure strength through trials, the salvation we have, the amazing fulfillment of all of Scripture in Jesus. And last week, the love we must have is this new family family. And he has never uttered one word of doubt until now. Now, all of a sudden, here is a word of warning. If, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's Peter trying to say? If this has happened to you, then you will have no problem saying a big hearty amen to 1 Peter as read. However, If you are a false professor, someone who makes false claims, someone who is on the periphery of the church, this word will be hard for you. Either you will reject it with excuses, or you will falsely assume that you are indeed in, and this does describe you, when in actuality, you're self-deceived. See, the true Christian, Peter describes here, has tasted the goodness of the Lord, He's challenged and troubled and disturbed by his own sin. And he puts in conscious effort to rid himself of it. He takes it away. He puts it off. However, the false professor sees the benefits of Christ. He sees all the good stuff you get from Christ. Like Christ can draw a crowd. We know he can draw a crowd. We desire the benefits of Jesus, but they've never tasted him. And this is so important. The infinite value of Christ must be discovered by an experiential taste of Him. There is no other way. You have to come close to Him. The text here doesn't talk about those who use their eyes to see Him, who look to Jesus and are saved. That is a powerful passage, but that's not what Peter says here. Or with their ears, hear Him and do what He says. Another powerful passage in Scripture, but not what Peter says here. Or you use their smell to smell him, as Jesus is described as the aroma of life. But it's not what Peter says here. For Peter, those senses are wholly inadequate because those senses are from afar. You can see something, smell something, and hear something from a distance. But tasting requires you to come close, doesn't it? Tasting requires you to experience it For yourself. And what are you experiencing? What are you tasting? The goodness of the Lord. The goodness of God and the gospel. Because everyone loves Jesus when he is at arm's length, don't they? Everyone loves Jesus when he poses no threat to their way of life. Everyone loves Jesus when he makes no claims on them. But Peter is saying here to know Christ is to come close and to taste the goodness of the gospel. I deliberately got Ian to read Psalm 34. And I'm going to quote a passage from that again. Psalm 34, 8 to 10. Listen to what David says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And David is completely correct here. Everything he says there is true. Those who have tasted the goodness of the Lord will fear him. They'll take refuge in him. They'll long for him just like a newborn longs for spiritual milk. And in the gospel, as we have seen in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, the saints lack no good thing. If you can read 1 Peter and say, oh, I'm lacking a lot. This doesn't seem like a good bill. I, I feel like I'm cheaped out by this. Then you need to read it again. Because as you read it, the only thing that you should be able to say is, the Lord is good. Peter is writing to a church that could taste all the Lord's goodness in all his wisdom. They have tasted his goodness in all spiritual matters. They have been comforted in all their fears and all their temptations. We taste his goodness in his living word as we read from its pages. We taste his goodness in worship, both privately and gathered with the saints on the Lord's day. We taste his goodness as we sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, declaring his wondrous deeds. But even more, we taste His goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. Peter is taking this for granted, for the implication is that if you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then you are deceiving yourself. You are not born again. You are not united by faith to Christ, and nothing that Peter has said to you so far in this book is true for you. So how should we respond? Come near to Jesus. Come and taste that the Lord is good. The Lord is so good that he gave his son to rescue and redeem you from all sin. Is that not good? Before you ever lifted a finger or ever tried to earn your way, he died for you. While you were an enemy, while you were hostile, while you were walking in sin, he died for you. Think about that. Imagine dying for a friend. Woo, high high call, but maybe some of us might do it. Would you die for an enemy? By faith we enter into this amazing covenant of grace, not by works. And when we taste that the Lord is indeed good and that the gospel is the central message of everything our lives will be transformed. When we saw how good God is to us, when He saw us dead in our sin, lost, He saw us alone, He saw us destined for judgment with a debt so large that nothing could repay. Simply by faith, plus nothing, we were grafted into His covenant community before we had done any good before we had done any good works, before we had tried to earn merit or salvation in any sort of way, Christ saw us and said, They are mine. Come to me. Taste of me. See that I am good. Simply by faith, you are saved, loved, secured, redeemed before anything has been done. And so for those of us who come to Jesus, our cry should be the same as David to everyone in this community, to everyone in this area, come and see that the Lord is good. But you better know how the Lord is good. You better know what God has done for you. And you better know just how beautiful the gospel is. How about we pray? Father, we love you. We love you so much for what you have done in Jesus. Lord, as Peter remarked, we have not seen you And yet we love you. Father, we have tasted and we know that you are good. And Lord, we have given all our lives to follow you because we know that there is nothing else that can satisfy. There is nothing else worthy apart from you. And Lord, as you called us to sacrifice and bring everything to your feet, you equipped us and gave us a new life. And you sent us back into this world as newborns who will one day grow up into salvation. To the salvation, Lord, that you have secured for us once for all, for all time. Father, I pray for any that are here today that do not know you. I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would cause them to come and taste and to see that you are good. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us lives to glorify and honour you, and that one day we will receive that wonderful phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. Rouse us from our slumber, Throw us back into our work. And Lord, will we do it with the strength that only you provide through your Holy Spirit? We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to take communion now. In a quite literal way, you're going to come and taste something. But what you're tasting is not bread or wine, because those things point to something much greater the goodness of the Lord. When Jesus died, and his blood was spilt, his body broken, for you, to rescue and redeem you. If you believe in Jesus today, I invite you to the table. Come and take the bread, dip it in wine, or dip it in the juice. The wine's the darker liquid. Come back to your seat, and we will eat together as one church. So please get up now, let's go do that, and then we will pray together. Father what better lesson than to hold in our hands the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. Lord we know that on that day when Jesus was betrayed your son went to the cross and he bore all our sins and he cried out with a loud voice it is finished and from that moment all our sin was nailed to that same cross Father, how can we repay you? What can we do? There is nothing, Lord. But Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that we have tasted and seen that you are good. Lord, help us to never move on from this message. I pray, Lord, now as we take communion, that we'll once again taste and see that you are are good. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.